Well, when I was in uh, seventh grade, I had a very awkward dinner experience. Uh, I got home from school, you know, did some homework, and then went around the dinner table as we did every night. And my dad prays for the meal. And after he gets done praying, he looks to my brother and he says, Nathan, your mother tells me that she found marijuana in your room uh, and that when you got home today, she smelled you smoking it. Uh, and so then my dad raises his voice and, you know, this is not allowed in our house. And he starts rebuking my brother. And my brother gets all offended and starts shouting at my mom, what were you doing in my room? And, you know, and there's this back and forth going on. And, you know, that's pretty awkward. But, you know, I wasn't going to let that stop me from eating dinner because dinner is too important for a meal to skip. So my sister and I are kind of just looking at each other with this awkward look eating. But then it got more awkward because my dad then looks at me because understand that I share a room with my brother. Uh, and so he looks and says, Matthew? did you know about this? And as I have a mouthful of food, I'm thinking, should I say yes, because I've known about it for a long time, or no, because that'll probably get me in less trouble. Uh, and so I'm just sitting there with my mouth full. And then he says again, Matthew, how long, or have you known about this? And then I, did, I said yes, thinking, you know, he's going to rebuke me. But then he rebukes my brother even more, saying, look at the influence you are on your brother, and you know, you're showing him that he should be taking drugs and all this stuff. And so uh, needless to say, that was a very awkward uh, dinner time and you know I'm sure all of us have been in a situation like that maybe it's around the dinner table maybe it's in another circumstance where you're experiencing someone getting rebuked for something they've done maybe you are the one getting rebuked uh, and it's an awkward situation and the reason I bring that up is because here in chapter 14 of Luke Jesus gets invited to dinner and this dinner turns out to be a really awkward experience I'm sure for all who were there because the Pharisee who invites Jesus to dinner, uh, he really invites Jesus to dinner to criticize and rebuke Jesus. But Jesus isn't the one who gets rebuked. He's the one who starts doing the rebuking. And so, you know, all these people who are there for this meal, I'm sure it was a very awkward experience as Jesus is going around and, and you and rebuking them and them. And so uh, there's a lot of things that Jesus shares here that I think are very challenging and a good warning for us. In this chapter, we're going to see Jesus dealing with five different groups of people at this dinner and exposing what was false in their lives and also what was false in their thinking. This morning, we're going to look at the first three groups that Jesus exposes what was false in their lives and thinking. And then next week, we'll look at the final two groups that Jesus deals with. Now, as we look at these false things that Jesus is revealing in each group, he's going to share something different. I want us to really kind of Think about our own lives and really uh, think about, you know, do we do any of these things? You know, the, the stuff that Jesus is challenging them with, the stuff that Jesus is rebuking them over, is that present in our lives at all? And if it is, I would encourage you at the end of this, we're going to take some time just to come before the Lord uh, and deal with those things and repent of those things. If any of the things that Jesus is rebuking these people for in our lives, we want to make sure that we deal with that. Now, the first group that Jesus is going to expose what was false in their lives and in their thinking is a group that we've seen him, you know, rebuke and deal with many times. It's the group that we know as the Pharisees. And so let's see what Jesus exposes here in the Pharisees. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched Jesus closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. 
Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that had fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Once again, we have something taking place on the Sabbath day. And on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. But this isn't just any old Pharisee. Notice we're told he was the ruler of the Pharisees. So this is the top Pharisee. He's the top guy. And he says, you know what, Jesus, why don't you come over for dinner? Now, we know that the Pharisees and Jesus didn't get along. Jesus has been continually revealing their spiritual hypocrisy, showing the problems that they have, and they really want to destroy him. They want to destroy his ministry. So they are ultimately Jesus' enemies, and yet they invite Jesus over for dinner, and we're going to note their ulterior motives in a moment. But I want you to notice that you know, even though it's his enemy that invites him over for dinner, Jesus doesn't say, no, no thanks. I'm going to go spend time with the disciples, or I'm going to go do this. He accepts their invitation. He goes to their house for dinner. Now, I think something important to note about Jesus is if you look through the gospel, he never refuses an invitation to come over to someone's house for a meal. Every time, whether they're sinner, whether they're, you know, some spiritual hypocrite like the Pharisees, when people invite Jesus over for a meal, he always accepts. Actually, you see him sometimes with like Zacchaeus, he invites himself over for a meal. Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. Zacchaeus didn't even invite him. Jesus invited himself. But we see Jesus taking these opportunities to go into people's homes and to minister to them. And I think that's something we need to note about Jesus. He doesn't just go to these dinner parties to get some food. It wasn't that he was super hungry and said, hey, I need to find someone who's going to cook for me tonight. He didn't just go to socialize. He went with a mission with a purpose, to show people their need for God and to help them see what was keeping them from God. Wherever Jesus was, when he went into these homes, he was obviously that perfect godly example, but he took that opportunity in that person's home where they're in their place of comfort to share with them and to express their need for God and to show them what they needed. And oftentimes Jesus shared what they needed to hear, not necessarily what they wanted to hear. Some of the things that he shares with people, they're not really wanting that message, but it's what they needed to hear. You know, he always took the opportunity to given to him when he went to these people's houses to minister to them. And I think that's a great example for us to follow. You know, oftentimes, especially if you've been saved for a bit of time, we kind of just surround ourselves only with other Christians. We only go out to eat with other Christians. We only hang out with other Christians. We only do things with other Christians. And we rarely have really any impact with unbelievers. And when an unbeliever will invite you over to their house, we oftentimes think, oh, I don't want to spend time with unbelievers. And, and many times we'll just say, no, I'd rather spend time with Christians. And, and I understand wanting to be with Christians over that, but I think we need to recognize this is a great opportunity. If an unbeliever invites me into their home for a meal, I should take that opportunity to go in order to build that relationship, in order to get that opportunity to share Christ with them, hopefully to share the gospel with them, and look at that as an opportunity to reach them, as opposed to just seeing them as, well, you know, I don't like the way they speak, or I don't like what they do with their life, or this or that, and saying, well, yeah, I used to be like that as well, and I'm glad that people who are Christians invested in me. You know, when I was ministering in Scotland, uh, I joined a basketball team. And the main reason I joined the basketball team, I like playing basketball, but what ultimately was to give me a natural environment in which I could connect with non-believers and really try to invest in them and share with them. And, you know, after every game, they would always invite me to go have a drink with them. 
And I'd take them up on it. We'd go to a pub, they would all drink beer, I'd get a Coke or a water, but we'd have great conversations where they would, you know, then open up because that was their spot where they felt comfortable and much, you know, especially in Scotland and that culture, that's where you had a lot of your conversations. And so, you know, we had a lot of great spiritual conversations. And from there, as they built relationships with me, they would start inviting me and Jenny and over to their homes and for dinner, and we would just get more and more opportunities to share with them. You know, it's interesting that most of the people that got saved in Scotland through the ministry that we had was from us being willing to go to coffee shops, to go to their homes, to go and spend time building relationships with them and ultimately getting the opportunity to share the gospel with them. We'd also invite them into our home as well. But, you know, it's a, it's a great thing to do. And I think too often it's like when people first get saved, they still have a lot of non-believing friends. And so they take all these opportunities to go and spend time with the non-believing friends. But the longer you're saved, usually the less non-believing friends you have. And you get to a point where you kind of have no influence anymore. And I think when we're at that place, we need to say, you know what? We should be looking to build relationships with coworkers, with neighbors, with others. And maybe you need to initiate inviting them over, but be willing, if, especially if they're wanting you to come into their home, to go and take that opportunity as we see Jesus does very regularly in his ministry. But I also just want to say a, a word of caution, because uh, I know some who will just go to any invitation they're given by unbelievers. There are certain places and certain environments that, especially if you have a background that would cause you to stumble in that area, you know, certain nightclubs, or I mean, I know guys who would go into strip clubs with people, and it's like, you know, there are certain things you just shouldn't go to. Uh, so I'm not saying go to anything that an unbeliever invites you to, but you know, dinner is usually a pretty safe um, place to go. And so you want to use caution, but you also want to recognize it's an opportunity uh, to minister to people who are lost. So the ruler of this Pharisee, he, he invites Jesus to dinner and he does it on the Sabbath. Uh, and Jesus accepts this invitation. He goes to this Pharisee's house for dinner. But notice there's also another guest that's invited. We're told that there's a man there and, and we're told that he has this illness, this problem. He says, we're told that he has dropsy. Now, dropsy is a condition that uh, today we refer to as edema, um, and it's an abnormal accumulation of fluid within the legs, within the arms, also within the face. Uh, and so this is something that once that fluid built up in your body, it'd be very painful, but it'd be very obvious, as you can see from these pictures, of someone who actually has this. And so they know Jesus is going to recognize this man has this issue because it would be probably all over his face, literally, and his arms and his hands and his feet. Uh, and so, you know, they, they invite this man and they invite Jesus to this Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. And I want you to notice the scene here because notice in verse 1 we're told something that kind of brings some insight as to why they're doing this. Because you think, here are people who don't like Jesus. Why do they want him over their house for dinner? Why are they choosing to do it? And why are they bringing this guy with dropsy over as well? Well, notice what we're told in verse 1, that the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. This Greek phrase translated watch closely has the idea of lurking and lying in wait to catch someone in something. So the ruler of the Pharisee and all these Pharisees that he invites to his house, and now they invite Jesus and this man with dropsy, they're, they're lurking, they're, they're waiting to catch Jesus in something. Well, what is it that they're trying to catch him do? Well, if you remember from last chapter, we know that Jesus just healed someone on the Sabbath. That woman who had that illness for 18 years, Jesus heals her. But notice this is something that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke. 
In chapter 6, verse 7, so the scribes and Pharisees once again watched him closely with this intent to try to catch him in something. Whether he would heal on the Sabbath, they, they might find an accusation against him. Chapter 11, verse 40, 54, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. They've been waiting for an opportunity to destroy Jesus, to destroy his ministry. This has been something that they've been doing throughout Jesus's ministry. And as I mentioned last chapter, we have this woman who's been ill for 18 years. It's on the Sabbath. Jesus heals her in the synagogue and the ruler of the synagogue is indignant and saying, there are six days of the week where you can heal. Do it on that day, but don't do it on the Sabbath. Now, the ruler of the synagogue, I'm sure, probably went to the ruler of the Pharisees. And he expressed what happened. Hey, Jesus came into the synagogue and he healed this woman on the Sabbath of all days. Can you believe it? And now the ruler of the Pharisees and all his Pharisee friends invite Jesus over for dinner. And they purposely bring this man with this illness in there because they recognize Jesus has compassion on people. And when Jesus sees people in need, he doesn't just let things go. And so they're wanting to know, is he going to, here at our dinner table, heal this man even though it's the Sabbath day? Well, Jesus doesn't disappoint these Pharisees. When Jesus sees this man with dropsy, obviously needing a healing, he asks them a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, we already know what the Pharisees think, and Jesus already knows what they think. They think the answer is no. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath because they have added their own man-made rules and regulations to the Sabbath law. And so Jesus, after they don't respond, they stay silent, they don't say anything, he heals this man and then he lets him go, leave the home. Because sadly, here's a man that they're just using ultimately to challenge Jesus, and it's kind of an unfortunate circumstance for him. But after Jesus heals this man, he asks the Pharisees another question. Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Now, just like last week, Jesus poses a similar type of uh, scenario on the Sabbath, things that they would do. And in this one, he says, you know what? If any of you have an animal that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, are you going to leave that animal in there for the whole Sabbath day in that pit, maybe to get injured and to have this torment of staying in this pit all day? No. You love your animal enough, even though it's against your work, you know, it's a work on the Sabbath to pull them out. You would still pull that animal out of that pit and you would consider that to be okay. You would consider that you're not breaking the Sabbath in doing that. But yet here's a man on the Sabbath day who's had this illness and you're not willing for me to free him from this illness, free him from this trouble, free him from this pain, but you'd be willing to free your animal. But notice... They can't respond to Jesus' question. You see, the first question they, they chose not to answer, but the second question we're told they, they couldn't answer. You see, the reason they couldn't answer this question is because it puts them in quite a bind. They have two possible answers. Obviously, they could say, well, yes, it's right to heal someone on the Sabbath, and if they do that, then they can see that what Jesus has been doing is right, uh, and it goes against their man-made rules and regulations that they have established. But if they say it's wrong... They realize with this example that Jesus has given, they look pretty unloving to people. They recognize if we say, no, you can't, then we love our animals that we'll pull out of a pit more than this man who has this illness. And so they really have no answer for Jesus. Just like last week, we saw that, you know, they didn't have an answer for Jesus' question either. Now, it's at this point in time, you would have hoped that they would have seen, you know what? 
we got a problem in what we believe concerning the Sabbath. You know, some of the, the rules and regulations that we've added here, you know, Jesus is bringing up a great argument. We'll, we'll do this for our animals, but he can't heal on the Sabbath? That doesn't seem to make sense. You know, that you would think that after all these times that Jesus is doing miraculous stuff and revealing these things, that they would kind of reevaluate what they believe concerning the Sabbath. But instead of being challenged to change when Jesus reveals to them their sin, they pridefully hold on to their man-made rules and regulations and ignore what Jesus is revealing to them. So the first thing that I want you to note here, this first group that Jesus reveals what is false in the Pharisees' lies and in their thinking is that they had false spirituality. This isn't something new. This is something that we've seen Jesus be revealing uh, throughout this uh, Gospel of Luke. What these Pharisees are doing here, I think, is a big warning to us. And I really want to note five negative things that people with false spirituality often do. And we see these five negative things here in the Pharisees' lives. But as we go through this list, I want you to really think about your own life because, you know, I'm convicted as I see this list and I've gone through this and I've studied this because there are areas where I recognize, you know what, there are times when I have false spirituality as well. And I want you to really think about and examine your own life and also be aware of these things from the standpoint of others who might come into your life trying to influence you like the Pharisees do with a false spirituality. The first thing that people with false spirituality often do is study the Word of God for ammunition against others, but they don't apply it to themselves. You know, the Pharisees were people who really knew the Old Testament. They knew the law. If you look at what was required of them, they would have had huge portions of the law memorized. I mean, these were men who knew what it had to say. But the problem with them so often was they just used this and then their own interpretation of it really as ammunition against people. But we don't really see them taking the Word of God and allowing it to challenge them personally to change. Because if they really looked at God's Word, if they really were open to receiving what it had to say for them, it would have been something that would have challenged them to be different. You know, notice that they're watching Jesus closely, but we don't see them watching themselves closely. They're waiting for Jesus to violate their rules so they can accuse him, but they weren't really open to allowing the word of God to show them their own sin so that they could change and be different. The first and most important thing about Bible study is personal application. Your main goal in studying the Bible should ultimately be to take the things that you learn and apply it to your life. If you just know what a verse says or you've memorized it, but it doesn't do anything to your life, it has no impact on your life, then you've really missed the point. The point isn't, I want to accumulate all this information about the Bible in my mind. The point should be to take that things that I'm learning and actually put them into practice. God doesn't just want us to have an intellectual understanding of the Bible. He wants the Bible to transform us. He wants the Bible to change us. An intellectual understanding of the Bible is not what makes you spiritual. You know, I see so many people that will point to individuals and say, Oh, look how much they know. They're so spiritual. Well, they could be if they're taking what they know and applying it to their life. But if they're not applying it to their life, they're not spiritual at all. They just have a bunch of information in their brain that they're not using, and that's not what spirituality is. Spirituality is taking what the Word of God says and actually allowing it to change your life. You know, I'm sure we've all met people who physically don't clean themselves well enough and start to smell. You know, when I went over to Europe, I found out the hard way that, you know, 
they don't really worry so much about uh, body odor and cleanliness as we do here. And, you know, I got on a subway and, you know, everyone's kind of holding on like this and you got a bunch of armpits right in your face. And, you know, it was a really, you know, smelly experience. And I remember thinking this would be a perfect Dial soap commercial. You remember those commercials? Aren't you glad you used Dial? Don't you wish everybody did? You know, it was at that point I'm thinking, yeah, I wish everybody here did. Um, but, you know, as bad as it can be to encounter people who don't clean themselves enough spiritually, it's far worse, especially as believers, to be those who don't cleanse themselves spiritually. We have people physically, but what about spiritually? Are we allowing the Word of God to cleanse us spiritually? You know, don't read the Word of God with the thought, oh, my wife or husband really needs to read this. Oh, I hope my kids really pay attention here. Oh, so-and-so really needs to apply this to their life. Because so often we're thinking about, oh, some other person really needs this message today, instead of first and foremost, how does this impact me? What does this have to do with me? How can I change with this? And, and I think as a teacher of the Bible, this is always a challenge for me of, I want to make sure whatever I'm studying first impacts my own life. That I, in, that I apply it to myself first before ever trying to apply it and challenge others with it. So first, people with false spirituality often study the Word of God for ammunition against others, but they don't apply it to themselves. Second, people with false spirituality often target and try to bring down anyone who confronts their sin with the Word of God. You know, why did the Pharisee invite Jesus to dinner? Why did this Pharisee do this? What was his motive? Well, from the evidence we have, I suggest that it wasn't to learn from Jesus. It wasn't to say, you know what, maybe we have it wrong and Jesus has it right. And let's just have a time where we sit down together and kind of just discuss these things. He invited Jesus to dinner to try and catch Jesus breaking their man-made rules for the Sabbath. If you're really seeking to be spiritual, when you're confronted with sin you're going to ultimately have a desire to repent and get right with God. Those who are really false in their spirituality, when they're confronted with sin, whether it's through the Word of God or through someone who's speaking on God's behalf, really instead of confronting and, and being willing to repent, they go on the attack. Well, how dare you claim that about me when there's this in your life or that going on? You know, when I was in Scotland, there was a Calvary Chapel pastor there who got involved in several different sins and he had four elders, and all of his elders came to him, and, and there was really overwhelming evidence of each sin that he was a part of, and they bring it to him for the purpose of having him confess, get right, deal with it, uh, and this man just doesn't even recognize any of these things, starts blasting each one of his elders, fires all of them, and the rest of us, at that point in time, there were six Calvary chapels in Scotland, we hear about it, other pastors, and so we go to him confront him, we hear all the evidence, and we bring these things, and he does the same thing with us. Who are you guys to come tell me these things? And, and he just doesn't want to accept and repent from the sin that he was doing. And really, that's just false spirituality, when you're happy to point out other people's sin, but not really willing to deal with your own sin and allow the Word of God to speak to you. Third, people with false spirituality often care more about their man-made rules than about people being right before God in their hearts. You know, I think these Pharisees could really care less about this hurting man with dropsy. It seems that they only invite him over for one reason, not so they can give him a meal, not so they can be hospitable to them. We want him here to see if Jesus is going to heal this guy. I mean, how sad. Here's this guy who's hurting, who has all these issues, and they just take advantage of him. Well, let's see if Jesus will break our man-made rules, and let's bring this guy over to find out. 
They don't care about this guy. All they care about is whether or not people are breaking their man-made rules and regulations. People with false spirituality usually care more about uh, external conformity than about inward righteousness. They're not concerned about whether or not they're pleasing God in their hearts. They're just concerned about whether people see them as spiritual outwardly. This really goes against what God is concerned about. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Notice what it says here. For man looks what? At the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, and so it's easy to deceive people and make them think you're spiritual if you just do outward things that they look at. But God's not fooled by that. God doesn't care about the outward as much as he cares about the heart. Because you can have all the outward actions you want, but if your heart and your motive isn't right, God sees right through all that outward junk, and he doesn't accept it. Because he wants to see where your heart is. So when you're only doing things outwardly to look spiritual, but your heart is far from it, and that's really where the Pharisees were. They were hypocrites. They were wanting to be seen as spiritual, but they were not in their own hearts. Our biggest concern should be what God is concerned about, and that is our heart. And those with false spirituality often want to be seen as spiritual, but they're not concerned if their heart is or not. Fourth, people with false spirituality often bend the rules for their own purposes, but they apply them rigidly to others. You know, these men had come up with all sorts of ways to bend their own man-made rules that other people weren't allowed to do. On the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to travel anywhere, but they had little rules where you could go really wherever you wanted. You know, here's another one on the Sabbath. You know, we, we can remove our donkey or our animal from a pit, but surely, you know, you can't heal someone on the Sabbath. They had all these little ways to bend their own rules. You know, I wonder if uh, Jesus' host who invited him there, if his wife or his child was the one with dropsy and Jesus healed him, I wonder if that would have been okay. Well, well, it's my child, it's my wife, so it's okay, we'll let it pass, we'll let it slide. Because so often people who push these rules on others, when you look at their own lives, they don't even abide by them themselves. People with false spirituality almost always demand you to keep their rules when they break them themselves. And I think if you come across someone who is constantly trying to push their own man-made rules and regulations upon you, steer clear of them. It's a dangerous person. Fifth, people with false spirituality often ignore overwhelming evidence in order to persist in their sin. I don't know how much more evidence you need when the Son of God is standing before you, doing miracle after miracle, speaking to you, and yet these people, they will not change, they will not admit, they will not accept their own sin. Even just here with the specific instance with the Sabbath, Jesus is healing regularly. He heals this man with dropsy, but that wasn't the first time. He cast out a demon of a man on the synagogue on the Sabbath. He healed Simon's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. He healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He healed the woman who had been uh, in that infirmity for 18 years on the Sabbath. He's been doing these things over and over to try to help them. Look, here's the evidence. Why won't you guys accept it and believe? I think this shows us how deeply entrenched this sin of false spirituality is and how diligent we must be to root it out of ourselves when the Word of God or Jesus confronts us with it. To avoid false spirituality, we must allow the Word of God to confront our sin and respond with repentance, with humility, not with hardness of heart. So the first group that Jesus exposes what was false in their lives and their thinking were the Pharisees. 
and he exposes their false spirituality. And we see these five negative things that people with false spirituality often do. Well, now that we're still at the dinner, it's pretty awkward, I'm sure, right now. But now Jesus is going to expose what was false in the lives and thinking of another group, the guests. Jesus, the man with dropsy, weren't the only people invited there. There were plenty of other Pharisees that were invited to this dinner as well. So let's see what he has to say to them. Verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him, who, and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invites you come, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, now he goes into a parable, and the parable is focused on those that were invited to this dinner. And the reason he tells this parable, he notes that these people who were invited chose the best place to sit in this home. And so he has a, a parable to speak to them. Now, in the next few chapters, Jesus is going to tell a lot of parables, so I want to make sure we understand what a parable is. A parable really is just a real-life illustration used to make a spiritual point. Parables are not fables. Jesus didn't use fanciful stories with morals. He took real-life situations that were familiar to the listeners of whoever he was speaking to, and he uses them to illustrate a spiritual truth. So here are the real-life uh, illustration that Jesus used that everyone would have been familiar with. It's a wedding feast. And he's using this wedding feast and, and what he's going to share about that to bring out a spiritual truth. Now, in Jesus' day, just like in our day, you would only go to a wedding feast if you were invited. And in Jesus' day, just like in our day, there were places of honor where the most important guests would sit. In our culture, we call that the head table. You have the bride and the groom, you have the family, or maybe you just have the you know, groomsmen and uh, the bridesmaid and the maid of honor and the best man, and they all sit at that head table. They're the, you know, the, the main, most, uh, most honored people during this wedding. And then the table's closest have the next most honorable guest, the close family, the close friend. And the farther you get from the head table, the less important you are, the reality is. Maybe you're the distant cousin that they felt obligated to invite. But the reality is, the closer you are, the more honorable you are. And that's basically how it worked in Jesus' day as well. The closer you sat to the bride and groom, the more honorable of a guest you were. Now, when people showed up to the wedding feast, they had to take a seat. But they knew that the seats closest to the bride and groom were the ones that showed most honor. So they would go and they would try to get as close as possible so people would think, wow, look at them. They're so important. They're so honorable to have this close seat. But sometimes someone would sit in a place of honor, but the bride and groom, they wanted someone else to be there. And so they're sitting down and they're thinking, oh, look at me. I'm so close. But then the bride and groom have to come to them and say, sorry, we have someone else that we want here. You're going to have to move down to the lowly seats back there. And in front of everyone, they're going to have to stand up and they're going to feel so ashamed and so silly that they took a place of honor that wasn't given to them. 
Now, we try to avoid this embarrassing uh, situation today by placing name tags uh, on each seat so you know where the bride and groom wants you. Uh, and so you know the table, you know where you're supposed to be, and you don't sit where you're not supposed to. But as I mentioned before, maybe there's a distant cousin you invite to the wedding only because you feel obligated and they think, well, we're family. And they come up and they sit there at the head table and they're thinking, oh, this is so great. Uh, and then the wedding party comes out and you're thinking, well, there's no space for you. This isn't for you. And in front of everyone, you're saying, all right, cousin, you know, get to the back of the room because you know, you're not supposed to be here. And obviously, that'd be very embarrassing uh, for that individual. Well, in Jesus' parable, he's saying, instead of sitting in the honorable seats and having the host move you to the lowest place, first, just sit down in the lowest place. Sit far from the bride and groom. How much better for the bride and groom to say, oh, no, 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 come up here. We have a spot for you close to us because you're our honored guest than to sit here and to say, no, 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 you're not supposed to be there. Go sit back there. Sit in the lowly place and allow the guest, uh, the, the host, to exalt you. Now, Jesus uses this illustration to make a spiritual point. And he says that spiritual point in verse 11. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The point Jesus was making with these seats at the wedding is if you exalt yourself by taking the best seat, then you're going to be humbled and told to go to the lowly seat. But if you start by humbling yourself and taking the lowly seat, you can be exalted to a more honorable seat. And the same principle is true in every aspect of life. Those who are prideful and exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. The thing that Jesus reveals that is false in the guests' lives and in their thinking is that they had false popularity. They sought to exalt themselves and take the best seat. They sought more highly of themselves. They wanted everyone else to think that they were so important and so honorable. They struggled with pride, ultimately. And so Jesus says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this is something, Jesus says so many things that are very radically different than the world's philosophy. This goes very against the world's philosophy of the day. If you want to be exalted, the world says, exalt yourself. Don't humble yourself. I mean, who gets exalted when they humble themselves? You want to be exalted? Then be prideful, exalt yourself, and you'll get what you want. God says, if you want to be exalted, humble yourself. And the thing that we ultimately need to understand is that God is really the one who does the humbling and the exalting. Notice what Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Notice why that he may exalt you in due time. God's the one who puts down certain ones, as we see, who are prideful, and he's the one who exalts others. And when we are prideful, we're told that God resists us. Hopefully, probably the last thing that we want. We don't want God resisting us. We want God's grace. Well, he says when you're prideful, he resists you. When you're humble, he gives you his grace, and he also exalts you. And God's saying, humble yourself before me. Allow me to exalt you. Don't try to exalt yourself. We don't have any better example than Jesus himself. He's a perfect example of this kind of humility, which brought that kind of exaltation from God. Jesus deserved the highest seat, but took the lowest seat, and then was given the highest seat by God. Notice what we're told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus had the throne in heaven, the top seat, and he chose to humble himself and become one of us and give his life and take a lowly seat. And in response to that humility, in response to not exalting himself, we're told in the Father turns and highly exalts him and gives him a name which is above every name. We need to follow Jesus' example, being willing to humble ourselves before the Lord. And if we do that, the Lord will then exalt us. Let's not be like the guests who had false popularity, who had a false belief that they were more important than they really are, who had a false belief that they had to exalt themselves in order to gain the things that they wanted. We need to understand without Christ, you and I are absolutely nothing. So let's humble ourselves, not thinking too highly of ourselves, and allow the Lord to exalt us. Be confident that if we follow Him and humble ourselves, that He will do that. You know, this is something, especially even as I've studied this and I look back on my Christian life, recognizing this has been an area for me that I've struggled a lot with. A false belief that I was more important than I really was. A false popularity that led to pride and and exalting myself. Wanting to be seen as greater than I really was. You know, and God really, He just had to humble me. He did it through a lot of failure. He did it through a lot of difficulty. When I thought, Lord, I can handle this on my own. Okay, go ahead. And I try it, and I fall on my face, and he'd say, okay, now you're going to humble yourself. Well, actually, no, I think I can do this on my own. Okay, go ahead. And it took me a long time. Maybe you know, you're not as stubborn as I am or as prideful as I've been in my life. But you know, God had to humble me, and it was painful, and it was difficult, and I'm grateful he did. But to show me, hey, you know what? Quit trying to exalt yourself. Just humble yourself and let me do it. Let me do the work, and quit trying to do it on your own. So the first group that Jesus exposes what's false in their lives and their thinking are the Pharisees. He exposes their false spirituality. The second group are the guests. He exposes their false popularity. The third group that Jesus is going to expose what is false in their lives and thinking is the host of this dinner, the lead or ruler of the Pharisees. Let's see what Jesus has to say to him. Verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So now Jesus changes, shifts focus here. He's talked to the Pharisees. He's talked to the guests. And now he talks to the ruler of the Pharisees, the host, the man who invited him to this dinner to begin with. And he says, you know what? When you give a dinner like you're doing tonight, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now, the key to what Jesus is communicating here is in this phrase here that he says, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to invite friends to you or neighbors or rich neighbors or or anyone. He's not saying it's, it's wrong to invite anyone to your house. What he's saying is wrong is ultimately the motive behind why you're inviting people. Because notice what Jesus is bringing up here. If the motive behind why you invite people to dinner is so they'll invite you back to their house, is so they'll do something for you, then you've missed it. Because that's not hospitality at all. 
Hospitality is not doing it so you can get something back. That is what we would say would be false hospitality. The thing that Jesus reveals that is false in the host life and thinking is that he had false hospitality. When you only invite people for what you can get out of it, that's not hospitality. That's just selfishness. And Jesus is bringing up this reality of this man and obviously his ulterior motives and what he's doing. But if you're just using people instead of loving people, that's not true hospitality. And that's exactly what this man was doing. So Jesus says, you know what? You want to be truly hospitable? Instead of just inviting people who can give something back to you, looking for the wealthy people or looking for friends and neighbors that you know are going to you know, reciprocate this and say, oh, well, you invited me over Monday. I'll invite you over Wednesday. Instead of just focusing on people who are going to be able to do something back for you, notice the list that Jesus gives. Why don't you invite the poor? Because they don't have anything to give. The maimed, the lame, the blind. And notice he goes on to say, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Well, how is that? We'll look at that in a minute. Jesus is saying true hospitality is to give to those who can't give back to you, to give to those who can't repay you. Well, and people think, well, well if I do that, then what's, what's in it for me? Well, Jesus actually says there is something in it for you. If you'll give to those who can't give back to you, you're still going to be repaid. Not from them, but from God at the resurrection of the just. You know what? Don't be concerned with what they can give you. If you will invest and be hospitable to people who can't give you anything, don't think you're going to miss out for it because you know what? God will reward you. God will be the one who blesses you for truly showing love and hospitality to someone saying, you know what? I know there's nothing that you can offer me, but I want to offer you something. Come, I want to bring you into my home. Come, I want to cook a meal for you. Come, I want to pour into your life. I know that you're not going to be able to invite me over to yours. I know you're not going to be able to give me anything, but I'm willing to do this for you. And ultimately, I recognize in doing this for you, there's heavenly rewards from God that are going to come to me. Jesus often talks about we should be storing up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. We should be focused not so much on what other people on this earth can give back to us instead of saying, well, why don't I just give regardless of what people can do for me and just focus on the rewards that God's going to give as I just love the unlovable as I love those who don't have much to offer, as I invest in those who don't have money, as I invest in those who don't have anything to give back to me. Because really, in our selfish nature, we probably don't even recognize so many of our loving relationships are all based on what I get back. I love you because you love me back. I enjoy spending time with you because you do stuff back for me. Rarely do we really focus on a relationship where it's like, I do everything and they bring nothing back to me. Those are the relationships that we kind of cut out of our life. Oh, I'm so tired of that person. I keep investing in them and they're just so draining and tiring and, and they bring nothing back to my life. Yeah, those are hard relationships. Those are difficult people. And those are the ones that God says, yeah, show them love. That's the true love of God when you're willing to love someone who's not going to love you back because that's exactly what he did for us. But it's hard. It's easy to say, you know, what? oh, you know, I love my wife and you know, she reciprocates that. I love my kids and they reciprocate that. I get so much. I gain so much from that. But yeah, some people you love and you don't get anything back except misery and heartache. But those are the ones that Jesus is saying, you know what, you really want to, be hospitable. Invite some of them to your house. Pour into them. You know you're not getting anything back, but you will from the Lord. We have to ask ourselves a question. Are we inviting them because of what they can give? Or are we inviting them because of what we can give to them? The main difference between true and false hospitality is the motivation behind why you're inviting people into your home. We need to be careful not to be like the host who had false hospitality, only inviting people for his own purposes, for what he could get. Instead, we need to invite people with a motive 
to give to them without any desire to get something back from them. That's truly hospitality that God has, the way that he deals with this world. So the first group that Jesus exposes what was false in their lives and thinking are the Pharisees. He exposes their false spirituality, and we look at these five things that people with false spirituality often do. The second group that Jesus exposes what was false in their lives and thinking is the guest, and he shows their false popularity, their desire to exalt themselves and see themselves as greater than they really are, their issue with pride. The third group that Jesus exposes what was false in their lives and their thinking is the host and his false hospitality, only inviting people for what he can get instead of what he can give. Well, this awkward dinner is not done. <laughs> Imagine being there, eating your food with all this going on. There's two more groups that Jesus is going to rebuke. We're going to look at them next week. But, uh, you know, this is a, a very challenging portion of Scripture. And sometimes we look at these people and we think, well, well, that's the, the Pharisees or, or that's this and that. And we kind of don't associate ourselves with them maybe in the way that we should. Because the reality is something important to note is that when Jesus shares what is false in these people's lives and thinking, the problem isn't just that this is existing in their life. The problem is that they're hardened and they're not willing to change. See, the reality is all of us, Jesus could come into our life and say, this is false, this is wrong, this is sinful, and each one of us would be guilty of many things. The real question is, are we open to say, you know what, God, I want to repent. I want to get right. I want you to help me change. Because this group here, they hear Jesus share all these things, and they're just hard-hearted, and they're just going to go and continue the way that they've been. That's the exact opposite of the way that God wants us to respond. When we look and we see this word reveals sin in our life, he wants us to say, hey, now that I see that, I want to repent, I want to change, I want to get right, I want you to work in my life. And so I just want to close just taking some time quietly. We're just gonna, I'm going to have Colson just play the guitar quietly, uh, and we're just going to kind of have a time just to reflect before the Lord. But if there's any of these things, of false spirituality or false popularity or false hospitality, and all that we've looked at this morning, you kind of said, you know what, here are some issues that I have. I realize that there are areas in my own life where I need change. I need growth. I want to encourage you. You don't have to pray out loud. We're just going to take some time just to be quiet. It's a time just between you and God to say, Lord, can you first forgive me? And will you change me? Will you help me to grow? I don't want to continue like this. I don't want to continue to be like this. And not be hard-hearted and just say, you know what, forget it. I'm, this is just the way I am. But to say, Lord, please help me to change. And so we're just going to take a few minutes uh, just to have a time just to be quiet before the Lord. And so, you know, and maybe it's not any of these things. Maybe you have another sin in your life that you want to just address before the Lord. But I would encourage you just to, to come and confess and get right with him. Uh, and then I'll come and, and close this in prayer.